Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. I enjoyed the Buffalo Bills getting their revenge for the second consecutive week as they beat a divisional foe again for the second consecutive week in retaliation from an earlier season loss. This time was the Miami Dolphins. And I want to talk about some of the narratives that have come out of that game, and specifically two things that I have noticed that stuck in my ear. They just kind of burrowed their way into my brain. And I decided to dive into them both. One of them is the idea that I want to present to Bills Mafia and football fans at large. And this is like many topics on this show, not really a Buffalo Bills specific thing. There's been some hubbub going around about a video that made its way viral around the interwebs. And it depicted a New England Patriots fan standing calmly after what had happened to their team at the end of the Las Vegas Raiders game. And there was a woman who was a Raiders fan who was just all up in his face, screaming and yelling, and he was as cool as a cucumber. And it got me thinking about the way we handle losses and the way we handle wins and being a sore loser and being a sore winner. And I was trying to think of how I would talk about this when it comes to fans' reaction to other teams. And I eventually settled on a concept that I want to share with you. And it's the concept of dual minimization. And it's based on this statement. Any minimization of an opponent is therefore a minimization of the Bills. I want to flesh this out a little bit. So every week in the NFL is a new story. One of the things that makes the league so popular is the fact that there's drama week in and week out. And one of the things that generates the drama is the time that the narratives have to breathe in between games. Sometimes it's a full week and other times it might be longer or shorter, 10 days, five days, six days. But unlike other sports, when a game story gets quickly lost in the next game, basketball has back-to-backs, for example. Football allows for each game to be a meaningful chapter in a season that is far shorter in terms of games played than other sports. Because of this, weekly opponents in the NFL can be analyzed by your fan base in much greater detail than a team in hockey or basketball or baseball. Head coaches and coordinators get a chance to talk to the other team's media. They get a chance to have press conferences to talk about the other team. And you notice that when they do this, they rarely give any insight into their opponent that isn't positive. Bill Belichick is famous for waxing poetic about that 
one and twelve team he's about to face. He might go off for five minutes about a punter or a long snapper. Now the team you're about to face may have already fired their coach, and their fans may be sifting through mock drafts in November. But if you listen to Belichick talk, you'd think they were in the playoff hunt. I think we've always just assumed that the only reason that coaches do this is because of bulletin board material. If teams can get out of a press conference without giving their opponent any sound bites that could be used as motivation, it's views as a positive. Given the small sample size in football, 17-game season, one-game playoff, it makes sense. This behavior feels wise to me. But not minimizing an opponent also provides value after the game has been played. It allows a team to avoid diminishing the achievement that is winning a game in the National Football League. If the Miami Dolphins are a bad team with a bad quarterback and a bad coach, a win against that team intrinsically has less predictive value than a win against a solid team with a quarterback playing really well and a head coach who has ignited hope and a pulse into a franchise. In the standings, the W is the same, but the sense of accomplishment amongst the team and the predictive value that can be acquired from winning that game has now been muted by a team's own perception of its defeated opponent. If Sean McDermott tells his team before the game, these guys are lousy, you need to beat them by 30, and then they beat them by three on a last-second field goal, Sean McDermott now cannot come in and tell his team that he's proud of them for overcoming adversity and getting a gritty win without it meaning significantly less. It means a lot less. Because he's previously said to them that they're an inferior team. The team you're facing, they're no good. They stink. The accomplishment has been minimized. So we've always assumed that it's just about avoiding bulletin board material. But I don't think that's necessarily true. It's about keeping your options open later on down the line. Because games can take a lot of different Twists and turns. You don't want to back yourself into a corner by saying, oh, that team over there, they're terrible. You should beat them by 30. And then if you beat them by anything less than 30, you're diminishing the accomplishment because expectations minus reality equal disappointment. But I think this is true in fandom too. If you wish to speak as highly of your team as possible, would it not then stand to reason that the teams they've played, whether victorious or not, would be teams that are due respect? If your team is 5-0, and headed into week 6, spending your time talking about how bad your vanquished foes are while simultaneously propping up your own undefeated organization is counterproductive. If your team does nothing but beat teams that are trash, it's pretty hard to say your team is awesome. If you say that team is a three, then the accomplishment from that victory is that you beat a team that was a three. But we do this. We diminish teams that are perfectly reasonable teams. The Miami Dolphins are a good team this year. Tua is playing really well this year. I don't understand why you would beat the Miami Dolphins and beat Tua and then immediately turn around and say they're trash. All you're doing is minimizing the accomplishment that your team just did 
because you cannot talk out of both sides of your mouth. You can't say your team is trash. My team is awesome because they beat your team who's trash. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. I'm not asking you to call a team that is a five, an eight. I'm asking you to not call a team that's a five, a three. Because then you've taken the accomplishment from we beat a team who's a five down and diminished it to we beat a team who's a three. Because that's objectively less of an accomplishment. Beating a team who's a three is objectively less of an accomplishment than beating a team who's a five. So why would you do that? Why would you diminish the team that you just beat? Because you're just diminishing the accomplishment of beating them. Now, I understand that there is a truth completely apart from the narrative. Whether you call a team a three or a five or an eight, it doesn't matter. There is an objective truth out there as to how good that team is. But now you can't make the arguments logically without backing yourself into a corner. You've put yourself in a bad position to talk about how great your team is because you talked about how bad the other team is. Even if you lost to them, the same things are true. Why do we do this? I'm not saying call a five and eight. I'm saying don't call a five a three. Call a five a five. Because anytime you diminish the team, you're diminishing the opponent. Which in this case is your team. And if you think what I'm outlining here is baloney. And what I'm describing lends itself to intellectually dishonesty. Because not every team is worthy of respect. I would question whether or not you watch the NFL on even a semi-regular basis. Incredible upsets happen with frequency in the NFL. No team, regardless of their record coming into the game, is bad enough to be a zero. They can all beat you, and they all could have beaten you. If you want to place your team in the most positive of light, then wouldn't you want to put the opponents in as positive of a light as possible? Because that would make your wins better and your losses better. Strength of victory would be better. Strength of loss would be better. Everything would be better because your team is playing better teams. We don't do that though. We only do it when we talk about strength of schedule. Oh man, the Bills have had a tough schedule. Really? Because you just spent the entire year crapping all over everyone they played. Do you you really think they have a strong schedule? Well, we do when it fits the argument. But my entire point here is that you can't have it both ways. You can't crap all over every team you play or will play and then simultaneously say your team is great because they beat up a bunch of teams that you just said are trash. That's not how this works. The best way to handle this is to acknowledge that good teams are good and bad teams may be struggling, but they can still beat you. That way, if your team wins, it can be an accomplishment. If your team loses, it can be less of a blow. Every outcome is better when you don't diminish the opponents because the diminishing of the opponents diminishes your argument for how good your own team is. We should stay away from incompatible statements. The statements, the Patriots are trash, and then my team is great, look at the reasons why, which include them beating the Patriots, 
are incompatible statements. They do not line up. And if you want your team to be as good as possible, if you want to be able to argue that your team is as good as possible, which let's be honest, most people do. They want to be able to argue that their team is good. If you want to do that, stop crapping all over your opponents because you're just backing yourself into an intellectual corner. We've got Josh Allen rushing to talk about. We've got plurality pie. We've got emails. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about minimization of opponents and how it reflects the minimization of the Buffalo Bills. And now, now we're going to talk about something different. Now we're going to talk about Josh Allen rushing the ball. I was doing some digging. And I stumbled across a stat that I kind of dug a little deeper into. That's kind of how most of these narratives end up coming around. Most of the articles end up coming around. Josh Allen in 2022 is on pace to break his previous career high in rushing yardage. As far as single season goes. This year, he's got 705 yards on 59 attempts. Six and a half yards carry. His previous high was last year, which was 763 yards on 71 attempts, 6.3 yards a carry. And it got me thinking, is Josh Allen having a career year rushing the ball in 2022? Let's dive in. Why not? Now, immediately you're going to think, okay, so he's probably going to break the total rushing yardage mark this year. But that's not really the best way to establish best year rushing the ball, right? So let's go find what we would consider to be his best year rushing the ball. Most of you are probably going to think about what I'm going to think about, which was his rookie year. Because you're like, wow, you know, Bruce, he had fewer snaps in 2018 than he did in 2022. You're right. Allen's 2018 contained 289 snaps. In his current year, he's already taken 311 snaps and he has more games to play. Ironically enough, it was a right elbow injury that knocked him out for multiple games during his rookie season. This season, he had a right elbow injury again, but without the missed time. But that means that his 631 yards rushing, which he had in 2018, was 2.18 rushing yards per snap. While his 2022 ratio is 2.26 rushing yards per snap. Again, we're trying to isolate for the fact that he had fewer snaps so that advantage is 2022 but the yards per carry number was better in 2018 7.1 in 2018 that's a career high and in 2022 as mentioned it's 6.5 the second thing that i would consider when making the argument that Allen is having a career year rushing the ball is whether or not he's creating more explosive plays Allen has 23 runs of 10 or more yards in 2022. That means that 39% of his runs gain enough yards to convert a normal first down. That is a crazy number. But what if I told you that number is shockingly dwarfed by his 2018 number? In 2018, Josh Allen ran the ball 
And 57% of the time he did that, his runs were for 10 or more yards. Advantage 2018. What about physicality? Allen's a tough runner. Few quarterbacks in the NFL qualify as players that defenders wouldn't likely be thrilled about meeting in the open field. As a rookie in 2018, Allen averaged 4.17 yards after contact per attempt. In 2022, that mark is at 3.56. Still, an admirable number and almost identical to his 2019 mark, but a good bit off his rookie year number. Advantage, 2018. One of the things you're going to think about right now is you're going to think about scrambles versus design runs. That conversation naturally comes next. Well, Bruce, you might say, design runs are easier to get yardage on. Or you might say the inverse. You might say scrambles are easier to get yards on. I'm here to tell you it doesn't really matter for the purpose of this argument. In 2018, 15 of Allen's 42 rushing attempts came on design runs. That's 35.7%. In 2022, 38.9% of Allen's rushing attempts have come on design runs. Whether we believe scrambles or design runs are more conducive to rushing success is irrelevant because had Allen rushed a single more time, a single time more via design run in 2018, these marks would be almost identical. That's a push. An absolute push. It doesn't matter. The delineation between scrambles and design runs is almost completely identical. So whether one is more conducive than the other doesn't matter. So while the straight rushing yards per snap number slightly favors 2022 and the raw total is going to favor this year, we can pretty easily look back at 2018 and say, wow, Josh Allen had a crazy rushing year. Justin Fields rushing effectiveness this year is most equitable with that. I'm not saying Justin Fields is Josh Allen. Too many other people are saying that, and they shouldn't be. But as far as the rushing goes, Josh Allen's yards per attempt was 7.1, career high. He was more explosive. He was more physical. Allen is unquestionably a better quarterback now than he was as a rookie. It's impressive to think that the really good running we saw on our televisions and in person so far this year, that's still not the best, the peak of Josh Allen's rushing prowess. So the raw rushing number, maybe go down the rabbit hole, and my hypothesis that basically popped into my head for a few seconds was quickly proven wrong. 2018 was still the best rushing year of Josh Allen's career. Let's go to emails. Daniel says, hey, dude. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Long-time fan of testing the patience of great Bills content creators. Just ask Joe Marino and Matt Perino. Happy holidays to you, the missus and the doggos. I was wondering if you could answer the below tweet. The below tweet says this. As someone that has advocated for Josh Allen to be compared to Captain America for years, I am comfortable with this. Superman slash alien comps mean he is otherworldly and requires non-Earth powers. I argue that he's a humble kid that no one believed in 
And the super serum was his drive. His comp, Captain America, is the peak of actual human skill and performance, not only in stature, but in intelligence and humility, plus leadership, camaraderie, and vanilla answers. So the question is, is Captain America a good comp for Josh Allen? He says, I know the captain wasn't a 6'5 freight train, but isn't Captain America an amazing comp for Josh Allen? I've loved it since he was drafted and based on color scheme, meaning for the community, character. All these years, I've never heard it anywhere on air. But let's face it, with Buffalo playing like they are, they truly are America's team. And the scattered past against the Chiefs, they spent years assembling a team to avenge those losses. You know, it kind of fits. So here's how I feel about the Josh Allen comps. Captain America wasn't much of a trash talker. The thing that always kept me away from the Captain America comps is that Captain America, even in the heat of battle, wasn't much of a swagger guy. Captain America was very buttoned up pretty much at all times. Josh Allen is very buttoned up in the press conferences. He's very buttoned up to the media. But make no mistake, if you're playing against him, he's got some things to say to you. Josh Allen isn't above flopping to get a flag. Josh Allen will talk some trash to you. Just a little bit looser than Captain America on the field. I like so much of the comp, but that one's always stuck out to me as being not necessarily a deal breaker, but difficulty. I don't think there's a great comp. I've been looking for a great comp for Josh Allen as far as fictional character for a long time, but every single one has some sort of glaring flaw. Superman has a very similar flaw. I know that we've talked about Josh Alien before on this podcast. But Superman, again, completely buttoned up at pretty much all times. One of the reasons why it's difficult to do a really good Superman movie is because it's hard to make Superman fun. I apologize if you're a huge Superman fan out there. I like Superman, but it's really hard to make him fun. He's really, really buttoned up. And some of the stuff that is famous for being a part of Superman's character, being a little bit of a Boy Scout, isn't as much fun to consume in 2022 on the big screen as it was in 1959 in a comic book. Just feels different. I need to find somebody who's buttoned up in public, but then can kind of go off the rails a little bit when he's in the heat of battle. It's like Captain America in the streets and Deadpool in the sheets kind of thing. That's kind of what I'm looking for, but I can't really find a good comp for that. Jamie says, Hey Bruce, I'm still trying to put my feelings into words with your suggestion to follow Northwestern, but that's another email for another time. Here's something I haven't seen many mentions of this season about the bills. It's how they have excelled in killing games off on offense with five minutes or more on the clock. We've known the Bills can go the length of the field in a matter of moments with Allen as our quarterback over the last couple seasons. And they still can, as shown in the Lions game. But what I haven't seen is people giving the Bills the flowers they deserve for taking their time going down the field to win a game and keep the opposing quarterback off the field. Look at the Ravens game. Ravens go for it on fourth and short in the end zone with four minutes left because they know three points isn't enough. The play's blown up. Poyer gets the interception in the end zone. Bills only need a field goal to win. They march down the field kick the field goal with nothing left on clock, win the game, Lamar Jackson never sees the field. 
Fast forward to Miami game. McDaniel elects the safe choice. Punt to the Bills in fourth and long, outside of field goal range, giving Allen the ball, needing a field goal with six minutes left on the clock. Marches the Bills down the field. Bask again kicks the game-winning field goal, winning the game. Two and his excellent friends do not see the field. In my opinion, the Bills are in that category with Mahomes' Chiefs, where to win, you have to play your best football, be lucky, and manipulate the game to make sure your quarterback has the ball in the last drive. This is probably crazy chalk and the reason I'll never be trusted to captain a team, but I genuinely believe that Miami should have gone for it instead of punting. If they get the first down, they control the clock, meaning the Bills have to do more with less time. Secondly, if they fail in getting the first down, the Bills can't kill six minutes of clock time with 50 yards to go, meaning Tua, Hill, and Waddle will see the field again. They need a touchdown to draw level, but at least it's in the hands of your quarterback and wide receivers, which is where most of the fans believe they would like it. So, with the benefit of hindsight, do you agree with both head coaching decisions, and do you see the other head coaches having to deviate from the accepted easy choices to keep Josh off the field in the last five minutes of play when only a field goal is needed? I'm fine if I'm the Miami Dolphins fans with them punting, and it's mostly because the circumstance of the game had just changed. So the Bills were moving the ball. Like the Bills ended up with 446 yards of offense against the Dolphins. But the snow had just started. So if you were thinking if there was a time for the Bills offense to be forced to drive the length of the field to score a field goal to win it, it's right when they're introduced to brand new stimuli. A brand new factor just got introduced on the field. A new challenger had emerged, and it's the snow. That had just happened. So if I'm the Dolphins, if I want to make you drive the length of the field and you haven't had to drive meaningfully against the snow so far this game, there's never going to be a better chance than to introduce a new variable right at the end of the game. So I'm okay with it knowing that if I'm a Dolphins fan. But I do agree with the premise. The Bills are getting better and have made notable progress in squeezing the life out of teams and making sure that they're the last ones to touch the ball. I think that maybe there's lessons to be learned there from 13 seconds and from other things like that. I think part of it's the fact that this defense has been a struggle on third and long. Third and longs have been a struggle for this defense. So if you run into obvious passing situations, it's not necessarily the easy stop that it used to be. The defense has played well this year, but it's not the same when you don't have Micah Hyde back there. It's not the same when you're just starting to acclimate Tredavious White back into it. So I agree with you in premise. I think they are getting better at that. I'm okay with it if I'm the Dolphins fan just because of the new factor that was at play. But overall, I think there's a very, very good chance that if I'm an opposing team, I just don't want Josh Allen to finish the game with the ball. I just don't want it. Evan says, 10 degrees, 25 to 35 mile an hour winds, negative 15 wind chill, because why not? Doesn't matter. My prediction is Josh throws two touchdowns and rushes for two because he's an alien. Justin Fields tries to match him, but throws a touchdown to Trey White and Jordan Poyer instead. Bills 42-14. I'm in. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. We have plurality pie to get to. Bills, Dolphins. This is a really easy one. Josh Allen, 32%. Dawson Knox, 17%. Trey White, welcome back. 16%. Other 
Real easy. Josh Allen was the best player on the field. I'm not a wins or a quarterback stat guy. I never will be. He was the best player on the field. And Josh Allen's the best player on the field a lot of the time because he's a really good player. But against the Dolphins, he was also the most valuable player on the field. I don't think, as of the recording of this podcast, Josh Allen is a top two MVP candidate for 2022, but he was certainly the most valuable player on the field for 2022 version 2.0, Bills, Dolphins. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We talked about minimization and how it's a mirror. We talked about Josh Allen's rushing this year versus previous years. We talked about a bunch of stuff. Now I got to get out of here. And I'm sorry about that. But you know, that's the way the cookie rumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan of Low Rumblings. <laughs>